Greetings, scholars, and welcome to Following the Gong, a podcast of the Shire Honors College at Penn State. Following the Gong takes you inside conversations with our scholar alumni to hear their story so you can gain career and life advice and expand your professional network. You can hear the true breadth of how scholar alumni have gone on to shape the world after they ran the gong and graduated with honors and learn from their experiences so you can use their insights in your own journey. This show is proudly sponsored by the Scholar Alumni Society, a constituent group of the Penn State Alumni Association. I'm your host, Sean Goheen, class of 2011 and college staff member. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. Connor Satley, class of 2011 from Penn State Barron, is an entrepreneur and startup mentor based out of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. He spent the last 11 years alternating between starting startups and supporting other entrepreneurs. Connor joins Following the Gone to discuss his experiences as a scholar at Penn State Barron, as an entrepreneur and startup coach, and life as an expat living and working abroad. Connor earned his BAs in Communication and Political Science, the former with honors, from Penn State Barron. This episode is great for any scholar at a Commonwealth campus, those interested in starting a business, or interested in traveling abroad for any amount of time, and certainly for any looking to live or work abroad. You can read a more detailed breakdown in Connor's bio in the show notes on your podcast app. And with that, let's dive into the conversation following the gong. Joining me here today, all the way from across the pond in the Netherlands, is Connor Satley. Connor, thank you so much for joining me here today. Thanks a lot for having me, Sean. It's nice to be here. I'm, I'm very excited to have our conversation today and talk about startups, talk about living and working abroad. But as is the MO here on Following the Gone, I wanted to come back to your time at Penn State first and ask how you first came to Penn State and to be a scholar in the Shire Honors College. Yeah, well, uh, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. I guess uh, the journey started there in Western Pennsylvania. I grew up in Cranberry Township. And uh, I've got to be honest with you, I, I wasn't one of these kids that grew up dreaming of always going to Penn State or something. It was just the place you apply to. Uh, I applied to a bunch of universities there in Western Pennsylvania and, and across the state. And Penn State's the one that said, yeah. I didn't really have my... Uh, Oh, hey, are we allowed to swear on this podcast or no? Keep it light. I would, I, I, I try to avoid the explicit ratings, so keep, okay. it, keep it PG. Back in high school, I didn't really have my poop in a pile. And so uh, I didn't uh, really get the grades to get into a lot of the places that I want. But for some reason, of all the places that I applied to, Penn State Barron took a chance on me. So I was really far away from Shire's Honors College when I got to university. Uh, I sort of snuck in there. And that's sort of where the Penn State journey started. Now, you, you double majored at Barron. Um, so what drew you to both the communications and media area and the political science majors? Well, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. As I said, uh, poop was not so much in a pile when I arrived there. Uh, so I just started out with comms. I started writing for the student newspaper and really fell in love with journalism. I really loved finding out the truth behind stories, finding out things that people in positions of power didn't want the students to know or, or things that were happening in the community, uh, really inspiring stories that people had no idea about. I got taken with that 
right away. But I found it very difficult as well to quiet the side of my brain that was following politics and was diving in on that. And especially after I studied abroad, I realized sort of the international political scene is is so, so interesting. Um, so that was always with me. It wasn't until my senior year at Barron that I decided to change political science to a, a major. Thanks to the help of Dr. Gamble and plenty of other professors, I managed to sort of upgrade it to a, a double major there in the last year. But it was always journalism throughout my time there. Working really closely with your faculty members is a common thread on most of the episodes of this show. So having those relationships is probably what allowed you to do that at the last hour, right? Yeah, absolutely. To upgrade the major, for sure. Uh, that was Dr. Gamble and and his team there at the political science department. But to study abroad, that the credit goes uh, to two people, which is Ruth Pfluger and Dr. Catherine Wolf, who was the French professor. Is the French professor? Was the French professor there? Without those two, I never would have left the, the States. Ruth sat me down and said, you know, here's the Penn State tuition at the approved study abroad location. It's whatever it was, 17, 18 grand for the summer. I was like, well, that knocks me out. I'm not doing that because I wasn't a French major or anything. And then she said, okay, kind of closed the book, put it to the side and said, let's figure out where you can go so that you do go and you might also be able to get Schreier's credits for it. Uh, maybe not class credits, but Schreier's credits. And that turned out to be the case. Uh, and also I got a Schreier's scholarship to study abroad too. So Ruth was just pragmatic and great. Uh, all the folks that I that I studied with and, and, uh, and met at Barron were just top notch. And regardless of what campus you're at that you're listening, come talk to the staff at that campus or Zoom with us here at University Park if you're if you're not at University Park. We can help you figure these things out. There's money available specifically for study abroad programs like Connor found. So make sure you're taking advantage if that is of interest for you. Now, Connor, you mentioned the student newspaper. And I think most Penn Staters, regardless of when you attended and where you attended, are probably familiar with the Daily Collegian. But many of our other campuses have their own student newspapers. So can you tell us about your experience with the Baron Beacon. Uh, yeah, sure. Well, I showed up and uh, it was a cool group of guys and girls that were there in the basement of the student union building. And uh, they said, hey, I think some kids are living in hotels. Does anybody want this story? And I said, I'll do it. <laughs> so I didn't really have any idea. They just knew that it was, I think, the Days Inn or something like that. So I called the Days Inn and I, hello, do you have students living there? And they were like, yeah, we do. We have the whole floor of students. And it turns out that some of the student accommodation wasn't ready. And these poor students had one bus ride in in the morning at something like eight, one bus ride back at nine, and they were living in hotel rooms, which was a, a really weird experience for them as freshmen to the university. And so we told the story, we put it on the front page. And ever since then, I, yeah, I kind of got addicted to that. And the folks there at the Beacon were like, hey, you do things. Why don't you do more things? Uh, so I just started to learn how to do newspaper layout and design, how to edit, uh, how to assign things to uh, other students to cover. And yeah, by the end of my time there, I had spent two years as the editor-in-chief, a year as a managing editor when you're running one of the page sections. And as I said, that just sort of helped me fall in love with journalism. And yeah, what can I say? It was a, it was a scrappy little newspaper that mostly didn't publish too much that was interesting for anybody. But every once in a while, we published a really cool story that, that told about something meaningful or that exposed something or, or showed the truth behind something. Not all the time. Most of it, I'm sure, was probably illegible and just completely uh, unintelligent. But some of it was, was really important stuff I really carry with me. And it was a, a pretty good formative experience, too, from like a workplace perspective. You know, the forcible deadline, the print deadline of a newspaper is, uh, is something that you can really structure your work style around. So it was great for sort of organization and discipline, I would say. So you mentioned in that story, Connor, that the folks at the Beacon were like, hey, in your words, you do stuff. So 
not surprising that you ended up in the Honors College. You came in as a current Penn State student. Can you tell us about that experience and what initially interested you in becoming a scholar midway through your Penn State career? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I think I just didn't really have my stuff together in high school uh, and wasn't getting very good grades. I managed to sort of turn it around my junior and senior years because I knew I could succeed, but yeah, I wasn't really focusing in school and for plenty of reasons just wasn't wasn't doing great. And by the time I got to Penn State, I thought, all right, I snuck into this place. Now's my chance to actually start from a fresh slate and be at the top because I know I can do it. I had just done it for a year and a half. But if I start now, then yeah, Schreier's Honors College obviously didn't let me in. Why would they? But then after two years, I got in. And so that was sort of the first stop on the journey, not really a destination, but it was a nice checkpoint for me that this new slate, this new start that I had, I had begun there, yeah, it was working. I was sort of at the top of my class. And in addition to the stuff I was doing as a student in the student organizations and clubs, uh, I was also succeeding in the classroom. So it was a nice little check-in moment, I think. Then obviously, I think it paid off down the line in understanding more about how to do academic level research, which I had no idea how to do prior to doing my dissertation. And it was uh, Dr. Troster, Rodney Troster, who advised my Shire's Honors College dissertation about digital journalism education. And I was like, yeah, here's a bunch of articles I wrote, and I wrote a report on it. He's like, yeah, that's nice for a class, but you know, you're going to be adding in information to the world now. So you've got to go discover some. And that sort of helped me understand things about, okay, how to do a content analysis or a quantitative qualitative analysis, or, you know, how to code for content analysis in job descriptions, for example, all that stuff was new. And then the study abroad opportunities. So then I think once I reached that checkpoint of the Shires Honors College, things really started to get fun. Absolutely. So you talked about that you were involved in some other clubs and organizations at Behrend, and you got involved with research with your professor. Could you talk a little bit about what the campus culture is like at Barron as opposed to, say, University Park and how you, you know, leveraged all these opportunities as a scholar? Yeah, well, I don't know what it's like now because I was only there, uh, what, 12 years ago. <laughs> but um, when I was there, it was sort of wild west in the club scene. It was, it, there was probably everything was there, but if it wasn't there, just make it. You had a very entrepreneurial or very flexible kind of student, what, what do they even call it? Like the student activities department or office. Ken Miller was there and just whatever you wanted to do, they would usually embrace that no matter how crazy it was. Uh, we just decided we wanted to do Barron Idol. And we're like, hey, can we can we book out the biggest room at the, at the uh, school and have like a thousand bucks in funding and this and that and the other thing and use all the expensive equipment. And they said, okay. It was like, yeah, it wasn't there. So you just do it. And there were a bunch of smaller clubs. I mean, certainly at University Park, it's like, yeah, I mean, working with the Collegian would have been great. That would have been a lot of fun. But I don't think I would have gotten the opportunities right away at the Collegian that I got at the Beacon. Because at the Beacon, I said, hey, I'm hearing a lot of people complaining about break-ins at these apartments. I think I want to go talk to them about it. At the Collegian, that's probably like a sophomore or a junior or a friend of the editor or the senior that gets that story. And for me, they were like, hey, oh, you're the guy that does things, right? In your second week here, never studied journalism. Go for it. You know, don't get stabbed. <laughs> you know, yeah, that was easy. You could jump in and do whatever you wanted to do. By the way, that's a crazy story. You want to hear that one? So yes, there are a bunch of break-ins at the off-campus apartments, and everybody was saying, these apartments have terrible security. They're easy to break into. Okay, so step one, I go to the apartment manager, and the apartment manager says, people aren't locking their doors. What do you want me to do? And I thought, well, that's pretty reasonable, but like, how do I prove this? <laughs> ah, man, this is going to get me in trouble. So I went around at the external apartments, and I took a little credit card, and I just slipped it in all of the door handles just to do a quantitative analysis on how many people actually locked the deadbolt and how many people locked the room door. And it was like 78% of apartments weren't using their deadbolts and like 30% of apartments were completely unlocked. 
I never broke and entered. I just want to say for legal reasons, I never entered anybody's flat. But it's like, that's the type of stuff you could do there. And then everybody's like, hey, yeah, cool. I guess people need to lock their doors. It was like, ah, there's the truth behind the issue. And so I don't know. I think the campus scene at Barron was a little bit, was, was really open. You could do whatever you wanted to do. There was always support for it. And no matter how wacky your ideas were, yeah, you were probably the first person thinking of them. And that led me to really explore a lot of things I don't think I would have explored otherwise, both on the academic side and from the student organization side. You can feel free to use that story or cut it out if you think it's going to get me arrested. <laughs> well, I'd have to do some deep dive on the uh, statute of limitations on, on that uh, for, for uh, Erie County, but well, we'll see. It's in the Barron archives. Anybody can look it up. It's public information. <laughs> <laughs> so you you also talked about your, your research. Can you talk about the academic side of your experience there and what you wrote your thesis on? Yeah, well, there were two really research-focused things. Uh, one was the mandatory uh, dissertation, which was which I wrote on. I was trying to see whether or not job descriptions in the journalism industry actually correspond to what journalists are being taught in university. So you do a content analysis, you see how many, this was 2011, okay? So this is going to sound super old, but like how many job descriptions are mentioning social media, Facebook, Twitter, and then how many schools, uh, and I picked the top 10 rated uh, master's programs in journalism at the state, so like NYU, Berkeley, Cal, how many master's programs in journalism also have those words in one of their courses? So I downloaded the course catalogs and I downloaded like, I don't know, several hundred job descriptions and you see what's matching. And at the time, it was really clear that job descriptions were asking for things that universities weren't teaching. <laughs> At least that's what I remember. If I go back and read it again, maybe I concluded something completely different. The other one was a bit more like uh, with the newspaper. It was like, hey, you do things. It was uh, Dr. Gamble in the political science department. He had something called, oh boy, it's been a long time, the Comprehensive Statistical Database of Multilateral Treaties, CSDMT or something. Yeah, which is this database of thousands of multilateral treaties that had data points for each one on you know, when it was signed, who were the parties, you know, what was it, the topic it was about, et cetera. And you could run really interesting research off of that. And he was doing, he wanted to do a paper on choice of language in multilateral treaties. It was published uh, four or five years after I left. And as part of that, I helped out with the research on just literally going through the official text of multilateral treaties and seeing what language it was in, and then filling that into the database and doing that several hundred times. And that was also a thing where he was like, hey, you're somebody who does stuff around here. How about do this thing? And I think I kind of owed him one because he helped me upgrade my minor to a major. So I was like, yeah, I'll do some statistical analysis for you. But those are the types of skills that, yeah, it's really nice to put on a on a CV when you're applying to grad school or something like that. You can say, yeah, I've, I've done that analysis. Yeah, which is cool, I guess. But you, so you did go on to get your master's and you studied outside of the United States. So can you think back 10 or so years as it was and think back on your process for how you picked the schools that you were in the country that you were looking at and what your your thought process and your criteria were for students that may be looking for opportunities after Schreier outside of the U.S. Yeah, well, as I said earlier, it all comes down to Ruth Pfluger and Catherine Wolf. Ruth Pfluger was the head of the Learning Resource Center and uh, was the head, sort of took up the lead on a lot of the Schreier stuff. And Catherine Wolf was the French teacher. And Catherine Wolf's classes were brutally difficult. Let me tell you, I still remember how hard those were. I had all the French tenses uh, laid out on the floor of the Beacon newsroom, just like, this is the uh, passé composé, this is the plus parfait, this is, you know, the empathé and how they were constructed and putting these just just to get like an A- minus in her class. I, I worked harder on that class than anything else in Barron. And she was, uh, it was brutally difficult. 
but at the end of her classes, you spoke French. <laughs> like it, it wasn't just hard to be hard. She actually, and we, we would meet up one night a week at the Olive Garden and just speak French, which is wild for, I was born in Oklahoma, man. I never, you know, I never left the States. <laughs> prior to that, you know, I didn't speak any languages. My, my dad's from New Jersey. My mom's from California. Like I didn't grow up speaking any other languages, you know, but suddenly I was at an Olive Garden stammering out some French. And uh, after I finished a couple classes or as many French classes as I could, I knew I needed to study abroad. If I really wanted to learn French, which I did, I wanted to speak another language. I needed to go be in France. Ruth Fluger really helped with that. And she helped find an affordable program. And I got a little uh, Stryer's scholarship. It was like 1K. Okay, so kids listening to this, uh, maybe they do other stuff, but you know, don't expect too much. But hey, 1K is better than nothing. And it was a pretty cheap French school for two months there. And when I was living in France, I thought, man, this is amazing like my roommate was this cool colombian dude named carlos and like it was me and him and this uh mexican girl and and uh this canadian girl that would hang out this guy from syria that wanted me to come visit him in syria i never did but sadly at least not in time not yet but it was so cool this international scene and i thought man i've got to i've got to live abroad and i passed through geneva on my way to lucerne uh, after that uh, course i just went and visited some swiss friends in a, in lucerne which is a city in the middle of switzerland it's beautiful and i thought switzerland is the most beautiful place i've ever seen in my whole life i need to study here and so i googled international affairs schools switzerland and some school in geneva came up and some school in zurich and whatever and then i eliminated all the ones that didn't have german but instead just had english and french and that left me with one called the Graduate Institute in Geneva. They were listed online on some forums, like in the same paragraph as Johns Hopkins and Georgetown. And those are the ones that I was applying to American University and stuff like that. Those are the ones I was applying to in the States. So I figured, what the heck? Uh, I'll toss in an application. They said you had to have a political science major. So I came back and I was like, hey, Dr. Gamble, <laughs> you think I can just tell them I have a major and then some, sometime over the next year, get enough credits. And he was like, eh, probably. So uh, I upgraded it there to a major and did the proper coursework and everything and I managed to get in. So that was the only one I applied to abroad. I didn't know anything really about the school. I had been to Geneva for two hours to have breakfast at a hotel uh, with my Colombian friend. And that was it. Uh, so all I knew is I wanted to live abroad. And if I wanted to study international affairs, which is what my master's degree was in, it made more sense to do it internationally, you know? All right. So I want to pivot to the next section of our chat here. And it's going to be all about startups because that's right. the space that you are in. And I'm sure some of the students listening are here for this specifically. Now, you weren't a business major. You went and studied abroad. You did a master's abroad in international affairs, but then you got into startups. So how did that come about? Give us your your uh, your your Batman origin story, if you will, for your startup life. All right. My Batman origin story begins with a cheeseburger. I was sitting at home and my roommate, a guy named John Mark, he's from like Tennessee or something like that, but we were living together when I was in Geneva. He comes home and he says, I just had a cheeseburger with this Mexican guy. And he has this social media website in Mexico called Caras Politicas, uh, which means like political faces. And he's like, people can go on that and talk to their politicians. And the politicians are using it. They're answering. And I was like, oh, that's kind of special. He said, yeah, this guy, uh, Daniel Gomez, he wants us to, he wants me to maybe take this thing over and do it in, in Europe, call it Gov Faces. And I was like, that's never going to work. 
that's a dumb idea. No one's ever going to use it. But then after about a month of talking back and forth, he got this meeting with the Secretary of State of Seychelles to like pitch this. And he was preparing all the political science stuff. But I was like, what if she says yes? What if she says yes, please implement this in the Seychelles as a political social <laughs> Do you know where the Seychelles is or like how many islands or like what level of internet infrastructure? And he's like, yeah, I mean, I figured that'll be on the next step. So I, I put together an implementation plan for him about what it would look like to implement a political social network in Seychelles. And he's like, hey, you're somebody who does stuff. Why don't you be my co-founder? So I, I started GovFaces with him. I uh, worked on it for three or four years. We implemented it there at the European Union and in the UK. And I think it was sort of the start of my startup journey uh, because it taught me everything I needed to know about how not to start a startup. It taught me about how I needed to validate the concept with customers before building it and how we needed to do way more experimentation on what people actually needed and wanted uh, and how we needed to have a more fleshed out business model that we could very quickly test just to see, can we get a dollar in? Those are some of the key lessons, but I got really addicted to this idea of I could wake up in the morning and create something. And at the end of the day, now there's a thing in the world that wasn't there when I got out of bed. That was cool. And if it was like a business or, or a job or like some sort of a career opportunity for somebody, that was really exciting to me. So I've been hooked ever since. So what are some of the other startups that you've been a part of? Because you've done a few. Can you tell us about, this is your chance to just brag, reflect, whatever whatever verb you want to use here, going back to you know grammar that we were talking about just a minute ago. But just give us give us your startup life, your your experiences. Yeah, well, I left GovFaces. Uh, they kept going on with it for a couple of years and they made some really great sales there in Geneva at the UN and everything. But eventually it shut down because yeah, it had been something like four or five years since we built the tech for it. So that was a bit outdated and we couldn't pay full salaries and, and the business model just wasn't fleshed out. So they ended up shutting it down. Uh, and I wasn't even around for that, but I'm still friends with John Mark to this day. He's a very, very close friend of mine. I took some time off uh, and then I started working at a startup accelerator. Uh, there's a startup accelerator in the Netherlands called the uh, Hague Institute for Innovation of Law, which I'll just call HIL as H-I-I-L. And HIL uh, ran a startup accelerator called the Justice Accelerator. And so this was a startup accelerator for startups focused on justice issues, helping people prevent or resolve pressing justice problems. Problems like with the police, for example, or with legislate, like with courts, or maybe with land, or with neighbors, uh, or with even domestic violence. So around the world, but with a big focus on uh, Africa uh, and the Middle East and Ukraine. So I worked with them for about four years, and that's where I started to put together the pieces on, hey, maybe there were some issues with my startup. <laughs> Like, I'm telling these guys to go experiment and talk to their customers, but we never did that. I'm telling these guys to like, hey, do a test of your business model, get the first dollar in, but we never did that. So that's where I started to connect those dots. And I started to see hundreds of business models, hundreds of startups. I started to see what works and what doesn't work, what, what type of team structure, what type of CEO, what type of sort of intellectual approach or emotional approach is really interesting. And what do I want to emulate? That's also where I met the co-founder of my next startup, uh, Natalie Dykman. Uh, we started a startup called Sema, uh, which is still going. It's in Uganda. It is a uh, feedback system for public services. So when somebody goes to a police station in Uganda, we collect feedback from them on how they were treated by the police there, uh, which, yeah, I can see your reaction. See, this is why you need video because your eyes just got big as half dollars. Yeah, yeah, that's a strange proposition, but uh, 
uh, it really is needed. And the Ugandan police incorporated the feedback and made measurable improvements in how they treated people and their wait times, in the quality of their service, in the disparate nature of how they treated men and women. It had measurable improvements. We worked at Ugandan police stations, hospitals, immigration bureaus. I think they were going to implement at the airport. And yeah, that, I'm really proud of that. I left Hill to go work on SEMA. Uh, I lived in Uganda for a little bit uh, last year running that. But in the end, yeah, I think the stresses of of running it and as well my desire to want to keep residency in Europe in the end plus a desire that you know this is now a, start, a, a successful startup that's funded by the Ugandan government I, I believe that some dude from Pittsburgh <laughs> doesn't need to be running it uh, there in Uganda and so I saw that as an opportunity to step away so I did so I left that about a year ago now. And for the last year, I've been working with the Social Enterprise Academy. They're really, really cool. They're based in Scotland and they're focused on learning and development for social entrepreneurs and uh, social entrepreneurships. So how do social entrepreneurs develop their leadership capacity? How do corporates become more like social enterprises by understanding how to really measure their social impact? How do charities become more like corporates or more like sustainable businesses by understanding about how to create uh, sustainable business model. And really kind of, yeah, I think a really fascinating experience there, really diving into the pedagogical aspects of learning and development for social entrepreneurs. So that's what I've been working on this last year, but this year is going to be something different. I got my third startup coming. I'm not ready to share it yet, but I'm already ideating and, um, and starting out with the first steps. The things that I wish I had done with my first startup, I'm doing now for my third startup and feeling so much more confident about it even before the first step is even taken because I, I kind of know how to take those first steps now. You make a really interesting point, Connor, about kind of those first steps. And it really shocked me when you made your comment about why should some guy from Pittsburgh be running this tech app in Uganda. You know, I think that's something you read about a lot of times with founders is they don't quite always are in a place to be the CEO type once it's up and going. And you seem to really gravitate towards that initial phase of the startup. So for students who maybe down the road have a startup, how do you advise them to think through that process of do I continue or do I sell or hand off or bring in other people to be my own boss? What do you mentor other startups on? Like, can you talk us through that process or your, your thinking? Every situation is going to be so different, man. Even mine. Like, I feel uncomfortable sitting here while you characterize my second startup experience like that. Not that you did anything wrong, but but just because you almost made it sound like I made some wise choice as to when to step away, when in reality, there's 85 wrinkles that I'm not saying here, because this every single situation is different in terms of your mental health, in terms of your physical health, in terms of your, your relationship with the business on an emotional level, in terms of your desires and what you want to do in your life. As I said, I mentioned I wanted to keep my residency in Europe. So you see, there's going to be some selfish reasons in there that I say, I can't run a company in Uganda while I'm trying to keep my residency in the Netherlands. I just can't do it. And I want to, I want to maintain my residency there. So I need to step away. So it's not always this altruistic business decision that we read about. It's not always so simple, but I guess the core couple bits of advice I would say is always find time to reflect. You need to, as a founder, take some time off. I hate this grind culture crap, man, of like, you know, I'm a founder and I spend 120 hours a week. <laughs> yeah. Like uh, there's no evidence that that makes startups that much more successful. Sorry. Like that is like the hustle of the founder. I, I just don't, I don't buy it. It doesn't mean you can be lazy, but it's like to stretch yourself, to neglect your family, to neglect your personal health, to neglect your hobbies, the things that make you joy 
joyful. Ah, that's not a healthy way to live. I don't want to start any startup that makes me do that. So that's number one. If you give yourself some reflection time, I think you'll just know. And I know that's really simplistic. But the second thing is to surround yourself with good people. Make a board of people that you like and people that you trust that have a genuine interest in you and a genuine interest and love for the business because then they'll tell you when the right time to step aside is. And if you've surrounded yourself with the right people that you trust and like, you'll believe them. So I I guess those are the two bits of advice is leave yourself some room for reflection and think about things like a board, an advisory board, uh, not just, and, and also obviously your investors, choose investors that you trust. You know, here's somebody putting in 20K at a really critical moment when we really need to do it. We really need that 20K, but you have to think I'm going to sit down in my living room with this guy two years from now and discuss a crisis. Is that the kind of guy that I want to be discussing it with? And, um, it might realize it's more expensive to take it than it is to uh, turn it away. That is really good insight and kind of tease up my next question a little bit here, Connor. So you've been a founder, but you've also done this mentoring, this coaching for startups. Maybe this is a silly question on my part, but what is the difference between, or how do you approach that, those kind of different roles there? Between doing it and mentoring it? Yep. Ah, man, there's not much of a difference. I don't know. Look, when I mentor startups, and again, mentors should be in quotes, like I just talk people. Most startup founders don't really have somebody that they can just talk to about what they're afraid about, about what keeps them up at night. And that's a question that I ask. What's currently, what do you currently think about as you're rolling around in bed? And that's, that can be kind of rare for a startup founder to have. And so I don't know. Yeah. I think as a mentor, it's really easy because you just help people talk through things. And what my goal is as the, at the end of an hour is not that I've given some solutions, but that they're trying to hang up on me because they just want to go work on it. Like, I think sometimes you just need a push to solve the problem and you need to reason it out somehow, or you need to validate your way forward is the right way forward, or you need somebody to tell you, Hey, if this doesn't work, it won't be so bad. Let's tease out the worst thing that can happen. See, it's not that bad. Go, let's go. Whereas being a founder, yeah, I think that's what your co-founder is for. I I think in all cases that I've started a startup, my co-founder has also been my mentor. John Mark with GovFaces and with Natalie with Sema, we mentored each other and we're always there to bounce ideas off of each other. So I think when you're a startup founder, you should also mentor everybody that you're a co-founder to and the people that are on your team. That's why I say they're kind of the same deal. You just talk to people and see what's keeping them up at night and talk through it with them. And a common theme on the, and really the point of this whole show is mentorship. And so if you're a startup thing, you made a really good point there, Connor, about finding somebody who's kind of like a neutral party who who cares about you, but is going to give you that real feedback and, and let you just walk through. And I like your goal for the end of the conversation is they want to hang up because they want to go solve whatever problem that they're trying to talk Yeah, like through. they're impatient with me. They're like, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, well, I know what I need to do now. Okay, yeah. Uh, let's talk in a couple of weeks. <laughs> I think that's a great goal for that conversation. Now, I want to ask one last question here about startups. And basically, I have no experience in startups. I work for Schreier. You know, I have a completely different viewpoint on the world. Is there anything that I should have asked you about the startup landscape, about being a founder that just through my own bias of not being in this space that I didn't think to ask that would be helpful for our students to hear? No, man. Um, Well, that's a great question. Um, I think probably the question I get the most often at startup events is what's the number one mistake that you see startups making? And it's a really, really common question, but it's also a good one. And I have an 
answer for it, which is a lack of understanding of lean startup methodology is the number one mistake startups make. They don't validate their ideas in a lean and measurable way before they go building millions of uh, dollars of, of tech stuff. So the idea that you can do an experiment in an afternoon you know, like a friend, a friend told me in the park one day, I would really like to sell ice in the park. It's really hot. I'd like to sell ice. I, I could get an ice cart and bring it around and sell people ice. Because look, everybody has drinks, but they're warm. Who wants to have a warm beer in the park? Uh, sorry, that's a European thing. We could drink in public. Anyways, but who wants to have a warm beer in the park? How about getting some ice in a cart and selling it? Because I bet you would pay five euros for a beer, wouldn't you? And I said, I would. What's the quickest way you could test this? And he's like, well, I don't know where I'm going to get an ice cart. And that that type of thinking is the mistake. There were actually two mistakes. The first is he tried to validate his idea through a hypothetical. You would pay five euros, right? As opposed to here's some ice, it costs five euros. And now do it to 10 more people and see who buys it. That's a really, a, a really evidence-based experiment. And most entrepreneurs don't do that before they go buy the ice cart, which is the second part problem is like, that's not the simplest way to test the issue. Uh, the simplest way to test the issue is go over to that supermarket and buy a five pound bag of ice. And before it melts, try and sell it all. If you lose, if you don't sell it, uh, well, you've wasted 10 bucks and what, 15 minutes. But if you sell it all, now try it with two bags of ice. Try it with another bag of ice right where you just sold it. Oh, you didn't sell the second bag. Well, that means that you're going to need to be moving around, but try it with five bags of ice in one park. Now you're out 50 bucks if it fails. So small, incremental experimental steps that are based around your customers and what they want or even before you sell the ice go talk to people hey how you doing are your drinks cold it looks like you're, you're having warm drinks why are you having warm drinks and they say well we don't want cold drinks we're having belgian beer belgian beer is a uh, craft beer you can't chill that ruins the taste so go understand your customers is the number one advice i give to startups that's the one thing i would say there's a book called the lean startup it's very outdated i don't like it it's not a good book, but it, it's the fundamentals across of what these experiments are that you can run and do, going and talking to your customers before you run out of time and money. Absolutely. And, you know, you, you mentioned if you're out for the five euros on the bag of ice, but the amount you saved in time and another money that you didn't waste by buying the ice cart and now you can go on to the next idea. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to like, well, the first thing I should do is look up the food and drink reg reg regulations in the city because I bet I can't even have an ice cart in the park. I bet you need a permit for that. So I'll, I'll send an email to the Dutch police and I'll see if they have the permit for the ice cart and then I'll send an email and people start doing all this desk research too. It's like, get out of the office. <laughs> Just get off your laptop. Go talk to people. By the way, is this the only time anybody's ever quoted a price to you on this podcast in Euro? <laughs> you are the very first person all I have right. talked to who's been outside of the United States. I've had people oh. all over the country from Florida to San Francisco, Las Vegas, obviously cool. a lot in Pennsylvania, but you're the first one abroad right. speaking in Euros. So All right. Very cool. I also I did notice earlier you you called it uh you you mentioned your flat not your apartment so oh, yeah yeah well that's the thing man is like a lot of this language that like I even had to you know earlier when I said mentor in quotes in my head was mentor in inverted commas <laughs> Like all of this British or uh, generally international language, it's it's in everything I say, and it's not a desire to be pretentious. No, absolutely. I, I lived down south for a few years, and there's definitely some things I've picked up, you know, saying, y'all, bless your heart. So you, you pick these things up when you embed yourself in the culture, which is a perfect segue, go us, into the, the next third of, well, quarter. So the third quarter of our conversation about living and working abroad. So basically, I just wanted to kind of open this up for you to talk about 
about what you've experienced. You know, you're living out our, our mission tenant of building global perspective. You lived in Switzerland for grad school. You've spent time in Uganda. You currently live in Amsterdam, I believe, right? In the Netherlands. Just give us some insight on what that is like coming from, you know, you grew up outside of Pittsburgh to living in Europe. Yeah, well, I wish I knew it was this easy. For Americans, you have this tremendous privilege of what's called the Schengen Zone. So if you have an American passport, you can just get on a flight to Paris and land without any visa application or anything. If you have an American passport, and they just like stamp you at the border and you can chill there for three months in the Schengen Zone, which is every country you know in Europe, period. So it's like, go to Paris, zip around Europe. You can do all that. There are cheap ways to do it with buses, with hostels, with things like couch surfing, or you meet some friends, you stay with them. I just wish I had known it was this easy. And I wish I had known how incredibly fulfilling it is. Man, it's the coolest thing in the world. It's like, when, when you're sitting down, I still get these chills of, where was I? Just the other night. Ah, we had Christmas. And for Christmas, I don't go home and visit my family too often. So I tend to try and reach out and see who else is, doesn't have plans doesn't have family around. We are, it's a very international city, Amsterdam. So my Christmas this year was with my cousin for once. It was like, uh, he was just traveling through randomly. Then the other guy was like my Greek roommate, an Argentinian guy that I'm really close to. We, we met doing some Brazilian dancing out in the Brazilian dancing scene in Amsterdam. This South African girl who I just met, who was really cool, and a Russian friend of my Greek roommate. And there was a point at dinner where I'm like, ah, this is cool. But sometimes you get so used to it because it's so international and, and the depth of the conversations that you can have there, it's so, so cool. You know, I mean, that many global perspectives on what goes on in the States, sure. But then also what, what's going on in the EU and, and here's a South African and an Argentinian and an American that have all made Europe home and are going to, but for different reasons. And so you start to tease those things out. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful existence, man. It's a lot of fun being out here. And for anybody who's sort of just playful with learning things about people and likes discovering new stuff, go study abroad, travel abroad, find any excuse you can, just go, go, because it'll be one of those leverage points that'll that'll really set you off. I look back at that study abroad that I did in France, just this dinky little two months, and it changed everything. Uh, that was the most important thing I think I, I did for the trajectory of my life was scrounge together some pocket change, get a little 1K scholarship. I think my school was like, classes were like 3K or 4K or something like that. And I managed to get 1K out of Stryers or 2K, was it? I managed to get a little bit like 500 out of somebody else, Rotary or something like that. So I was just scrounging every little bit of cash I could. It's, uh, yeah, what can I say? It's the biggest transformational moment of my life. So I really, really recommend it to as many scholars as possible. And if you haven't picked up, you mentioned Christmas. We're recording this in early January. So I'm sure your Argentinian guest was still probably riding a high from the end of the 2022 Men's FIFA World Cup uh, and, and Argentina's triumph there. So I'm sure he was probably still pretty happy about that. He was pleased. As uh, versus, you know, I believe the, the U.S. team fell out to the Netherlands. So I'm sure that was probably an interesting dynamic for, for you there. I don't know if you're a soccer fan, football fan, but I'm sure that was interesting. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah in well, that's, but that's also the thing is like, it's interesting being the token American in the room. So it's like when it's the Dutch and the Americans facing each other, it's like people kind of look at you and they go like, hey, uh, what do you think about this one? It's an interesting thing, I, I think, going abroad also because you are a bit of a, a very informal anecdotal diplomat and 
And so people are going to look to you to understand what are Americans like. And there's a lot of work I think that we need to do, Americans need to do around the world to be more engaged and to show that we can be engaged, that we can be kind and humble, that we can learn other people's languages and cultures. And so I also see it as like, yeah, if there's anybody listening that feels that at all, just go do it. We need you out here. <laughs> if you feel that and if you feel like, yeah, Americans need to be more in the world and of the world, make any excuse you can to go do it. Yeah, we need you. So last question on this topic. What was just like the most surprising thing or one thing you other than, you know, you said it was really easy, but like what's like just maybe like a really micro level thing that you were really surprised by that you wish you had known about before taking the, the bold leap to move? Surprising. It's been a while since I moved abroad, so it's hard to put myself back in the feet of the guy that just arrived out there. Man, it was I can't say anything was surprising it was like um it was like being thrown into a whirlpool or something where you can't tell which way is up it's just there was so much sensory overload of of these beautiful swiss mountains that i was seeing of these people from different countries that i had never even considered getting to meet a, a person from that place it was languages all around me all the time i mean all of it now sounds like well obviously but i don't think anything really surprised me because everything surprised me <laughs> it was just every single day there was something new and interesting. And I guess it, maybe it, as I think back to that time, I, it felt a little bit like when I was back in the States, I understood all of the social cues. I could go out to any bar or any club or, or a church or an axe throwing competition and chat with the person next to me. And I know what the social cues are as far as whether this guy is wanting to talk with me or not, or whether she's uncomfortable or whether it's cool to go chat with strangers or eye contact or how to dress. It was all sorted out. I had spent my entire life learning that in the States. And then suddenly you take all of that away and you don't know where to buy toothpaste anymore. And you don't know if it's okay that in Germany that you speak to somebody next to you at the pub versus in the UK, if you speak to somebody next to you at the pub versus Ireland versus Scotland versus France. And do you need to speak French with the guy that's in France? What if you meet the guy that's in France in Germany, but you speak French, should you? It's like all of this was suddenly new. And yeah, what can I say? I, I think it was tiring at the beginning, but now I couldn't imagine living without it. It's a really stimulating way to live, I think. It's fun. That is really, really good insight, you know, especially even for if you're just thinking about studying abroad, you listening to, to think about those and just the, the new possibilities that opens for you. Now, Connor, I do want to ask one question for you before we go into our reflection questions that I ask everybody. You've been involved as a volunteer with the college, despite living across the Atlantic for the past decade. What drives you to give back as a volunteer despite the demands of work, family, travel, and getting to live in Europe and experience all these new things, as well as kind of the practical thing of there's a time difference and a continental difference. Yeah, I, I mean, I did it because they asked, man. I think probably 90% of the things that people ask me to do, I just do. Um, I've become pretty good at setting boundaries for myself. I'll say no when I need to say no. But almost every time I just say yes to some things, it always ends up being interesting. Do you know what I mean? It's like some guy was like, hey, do you want to interview potential Shriers Honors College people? And I was like, yeah, all right. And then my first phone call was with some terrified 17-year-old that he's like, I don't know how to do a thesis. I was like, yo, ho, ho, ho. I didn't, I didn't know how to write a thesis. What are you talking about? I don't know how to do that stuff. But like, I found a good teacher. I found a good prof, Dr. Troster, and he walked me through it. He, and I had to do it again for master's. He's like, I want to do a master's. I was like, well, then you're going to need to learn it. And it, then, ah, that was cool. It was a nice conversation I had with some random guy. And so I did a couple years of that. And then, yeah, I don't know. Um, Dr. Mather uh, just reached out again. That's a dean of the, or dean? Is that what you call him? Yeah, dean of the uh, Shriver's Honors College just reached out a, a little while ago and um, now I'm working with them on on sort of this community and global outlook effort within Shire's Honors College about uh, sort of how the how the college can 
can work on its community and, and its international reach. And so you never know where it leads to. I just say yes to stuff, man. It's I got to be honest with you. It's not totally a Butchryer's Honors College. It's just when people ask me to do things, I'm usually like, yeah, all right. Unless it's, you know, a, a ton of free work that I can't do while keeping myself healthy. I just say yes. And I think that's pretty much how you ended up here on this podcast. I DM'd you on LinkedIn and you're like, sure, send me an email with more details. Yeah, but even then, even when I got your message, I was like, ah, oh, man, podcast? Like, I'm just going to sound like some whiny white dude that's, uh, you know, bloviating about study abroad. Ah, whatever. I guess that's what I am. So yeah, send me an email. I just say yes to things. That's all. Well, Connor, I do want to pivot into the last part of our, our time here with questions I ask everybody. First, I want to, and I'm curious, very curious on your answer, given what you've shared so far, but what would you say is your biggest success to date? And what you took from that? I think it's creating jobs. My first startup created a whole lot of volunteer and internship sort of BS unpaid opportunities, which were still really interesting learning opportunities. We had like 120 people working with us, but not really working. We weren't paying them a salary. It was not okay. I, I don't look back on that with pride. My second startup created about a dozen full-time jobs in Uganda of people that I knew and worked with and went to the office with every day that are incredibly talented, cool people, many of whom went on to uh, already went on to master's universities or great jobs with other companies that I'm so, I hate to see them go, but I'm like, you know, we lost this tech guy named Joel. He, and he, he just, Connor, I'm, I just got hired by this like AI company. I'm like, Joel, that's fantastic, man. They're like, there's nothing I can do to keep him because we can't afford you know, to match the salary that they've offered. But I'm like, I'm so happy. I'm so proud. When I look back on the people that worked with SEMA, I think that's the biggest success that I had was uh, we didn't miss a paycheck in, in all the years that, that we hired them. And just to keep the revenue flowing enough that you that you are actually, when you hire somebody, <laughs> it's going to sound so dumb for your listeners that actually run businesses, but like when you hire like let's say you get you Sean you get a job that pays you like 50k a year you're happy about that but but then hang on a second you got to take some taxes out of that so you're only getting what is it like 32 net or something but the business has to think it's not just 50k it's something like 75k cuz i've got to pay these payroll taxes on top of what i pay Sean so on the budget it's 75k and then oh the, you live in a country where you've got to invest in somebody's uh, pension as well so that's an extra 10% so actually it's like 82 or something like that in some places in europe that's how works. And so as a business manager to do that, legitimate, real, full-time employment with long-term contracts, investing in pensions, paying the taxes, I'm so proud of that. I think of everything I ever did, I think that's the thing I'm, oh, well, let's say uh, on the startup side, I think that's the thing I'm proudest of. That is really, really good insight there. And I think probably something that doesn't get talked about a lot on kind of the startup space is actually hiring people. And, and like you said, there's the full compensation package. And especially here in the US, you've got health insurance and other things to consider too. Yeah. But on the flip side, Connor, what would you say is the biggest transformational learning moment or mistake that you've made and what you took from that so far? Yeah, it was working at the Hill Justice Accelerator, that startup accelerator after my first startup, because we had this uh, session from a Dutch company called Blue Whale Ventures. And they came in and they told us stories about how they only support startups that have not taken their first step yet. It's only people with an idea. And I thought that was really cool. So we had them over and they talked about how they walk people through taking their first steps of today, I want you to go out and talk to 100 customers. And what's your hypothesis? Your hypothesis is 80% of them are already using an app that does this on their phones. Great. That's measurable. That's about their past actions. Go out and measure that. Oh, only 20% are. Well, your idea is flawed. What do you want to do next? And I love that. That that made me realize about uh, you know what I was talking about earlier as far as lean startup. That changed 
everything for me, man. It changed how I plan things socially, like personally, like start small, put out a small idea somewhere and just see how people think about it and then plan a giant trip somewhere with 50 of your friends or something, you know, but start something small and validate that it's something interesting first and then go and invest your time and money into it. That was the biggest transformational moment, I think, for me. Excellent. Now, I typically talk and ask about mentorship at this yeah, point. We got that one. We've already covered that quite a bit, so we're going to skip that. Um, <laughs> Next question, too. I... <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, are there any, is there, I know you've mentioned a couple of faculty um, and, and and some support staff from Behrend. Um, is there any additional folks that you wanted to give shout outs to? Oh, man, I can go all day on this one. So I mentioned Dr. Wolf and Ruth Fluger, who were uh, so instrumental in me studying abroad. I mentioned Drs. Troster and uh, Gamble uh, really helped me on uh, on my political science and, and communications front. Dr. V. Brands uh, was the music was is the music teacher uh band teacher at penn state Barrend. we had so much fun man I, there's a plenty of stories i can't tell you on the podcast but he was just a fantastic fantastic music professor that i still play saxophone all the time and of course it's due to my great high school teachers as well but dr v brands helped me learn love for jazz again and i will always appreciate him for that there's there's a ton more man uh dr champagne was great i asked him before i moved to france i'm like hey dr champagne his name's actually dr champagne Champagne. And this guy's like the most fashionable person you've ever met in your life. And he like spends a lot of his summers in Italy and all this stuff. So I was like, Dr. Champagne, what do Europeans wear? <laughs> and he's like, I, I still remember his response. He's like, jeans, but they fit. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> So Dr. Chaffee was great for me. Yeah, Dr. Ford and, of course, uh, Dr. Burke, uh, uh, the chancellor there. Dr. Ford's now the chancellor at Barron, so say hi to him as well. And I'm sure I'm missing a bunch, but those are some of the highlights. Fantastic. Is there any general last piece of advice that you wanted to give scholars that are listening that hasn't come up previously in our conversation? Maybe, you know, with all this startup stuff, if this is going to be listened to by people who are talking about startups and if it's startup week, there's no way to say this without sounding like an old person who's saying like, if I were your age, but I'm going to try anyways. And if people want to tell me to shove it, they could tell me to shove it. But like when you're in university, you have a tremendous bubble of protection that you're not going to have after university in order to start your startup, because you'll be able to start every single customer interview or every single client interview or user interview. You'll start it with, I'm a student at Penn State. And what we're doing is we're starting a startup about this, this, this. There will be immediate goodwill there, immediate goodwill that you'll never have after you graduate. You'll never have it again. It's so cool. And there are resources within the Sarazano's College, of course, but also within Penn State, but also nationally. Like look up competitions for like student entrepreneurship. There's a million of them. You can get money, you can get support, you can get mentorship. And then like, sorry, but like as soon as you're out of university, like that protective bubble goes away. So man, like if I could go back in time, I would have been starting startups left, right, and center. Like I forget get all the student organizations I was in, man, I would have been starting companies. Because it's like, I look now at university kids and they're so incubated, so protected, privileged in a way during their university times with things that people outside of university don't have. I'm not saying it's not hard and I'm not saying you won't have to work. And uh, But I'm not saying it won't be hard. I'm just saying take advantage of that bubble you're in. Every single label you can attach to yourself, whether it's student, whether it's where your family comes from, 
whether it's whatever, use the label at you can that you can at every single point in life to see what opportunities are out there for you. And the label of student is always a really good one. Absolutely. And give a quick plug here to Invent Penn State and the Launchbox programs and everything that's available for you, not just at University Park, but across the Commonwealth as well for folks affiliated with Penn State who are looking to do startups and some of the great programs like Summer Founders and others that are supported by Shire Scholar alumni. So great opportunities there. Connor, if a scholar wanted to reach out to you and take this conversation further, they have follow-up questions for you. What's the best way for them to connect with you? LinkedIn. Uh, you can, They can type my name in as a website. So www.connorsatley.com and it'll just send you straight to my LinkedIn or just uh, search my name there on LinkedIn. Sorry, uh, if they want to reach out, they have to send a message with their connection. This is the dumbest thing in the world, Sean. Like 98% of the connections that approach me on LinkedIn, they just connect. Send a message with your connection always. Even if you're sitting next... Okay, wait, no, hang on a second. We're going on a tangent here. Every person that I connect to on LinkedIn, I send a message to. So if I'm at a conference and somebody next to me says, hey, you're kind of nice, let's connect on LinkedIn. I will sit there and put a connection request and then send them a message saying, dear Sean, it was really nice to meet you at the 2014 Conference on Social Entrepreneurship in Bulgaria. I hope we can stay connected. Let me know if ever any of my contacts are of use to you. Send. I'll do it when they're right next to me, when they're watching me send the message. I'll do it. I don't care. Or on the plane or when I get back to the hotel or whatever. Why? Because in seven years, somebody will ask me, hey, does anybody know the Minister of Trade for Bulgaria? And I'll go, well, I can look. And then I go on LinkedIn and he's got a first degree connection with the Deputy Minister for Economy and Entrepreneurship in Bulgaria, who I happen to sit next to at the conference. So, hey, I wonder. I forgot this guy, but I'll open up messages and see where I know him from. And there's my message to him. Hi, so-and-so. <laughs> and look at me. I was all kind and polite. Let me know if ever any of my contacts can be of use to you. You know, and that now eight years later, I'm like, get me the minister of trade for Bulgaria. <laughs> you owe me. It's to send a connection without a message is insanity and you're not using LinkedIn, right? So please do connect with me and send me a message. Not that anybody's, okay, if you've made it to the end of this podcast, <laughs> then you're awesome. I love you. And connect with me on LinkedIn. Absolutely. And I would agree. If you are still listening here, thank you so much. And you know, if so, you wait, are- Hang on. Before you ask me the ice cream question, is there oh, anything yes. you would like to say to viewers who made it to the end of the podcast? Let's put a little Easter egg in here from you, Sean. Wait, let me ask you one or two questions. What's, sure. the, what's the coolest thing you've learned on these podcasts? Ooh. Honestly, I think the coolest thing is that I had a lot of trouble trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And so I went into student affairs because I just didn't leave the university setting. And I have learned about so many different industries and a lot of the intricacies. Oh. And I've been able to challenge my assumptions on what some of those are just from yeah. like, I have to have some like very cursory level of knowledge and to ask about like, tell me about Bedside Manor or tell me about how you get startup <laughs> funding or whatever yeah. the question is. And so I I really just have learned about so many different careers, ones I didn't even know existed or the, or the depth and, and variety. One recently I did uh, that aired in or published in November, you know, uh, just as an example, I was talking with a classmate of mine, Katie Poole, who is the senior athletic trainer for the women's volleyball team at the University of Kentucky, where I worked before coming back to Penn State. And I never really had thought about athletic training as, and she put it, you know, it's a healthcare profession. I had never really, I thought it was athletics, but she was like, no, it's a healthcare profession. You are responsible for the health and well-being of these athletes. And the week we're recording this, never more press or, or more in the zeitgeist than what happened with the Buffalo Bills safety, Damar Hamlin during the game against the Cincinnati Bengals right after the Rose Bowl game. So that was just, you know, one example, but learning about so many different industries and being able to share this with students who they take one thing out of this conversation, then I'm happy. And 
And is there anybody that you would like to give a shout out to, Sean? Oh my gosh. Well, I'd have to give one out to my boss, Sean Miller, honestly, because I had pushed for this idea and he's been a champion of it from the get-go. And just the rest of the staff here in the Honors College are just really great. And we have a great marketing team here that's um, working on getting this out there to more people now. And I'm very appreciative of them. Obviously, Dean Mather is a big supporter. He was on here a few episodes back fall 2022. If you want to go back and listen, that's a very long one with him. We just kind of kept going. When we were in the GFC, we did it in person. Um, so appreciate all those. And then obviously want to give a shout out to my wife, Elizabeth, who I've talked through issues and, and stuff for work. And she's kind of like my little board, if you will. So oh, um, nice, man. Good work. And I give a shout out to the Scholar Alumni Society board leadership. A lot of them were kind of my guinea pigs when I got this going. So I definitely would give a shout out to them as well. Uh, Natalie Keller, John Hemmer, Sam Bonzel, Asia Grant, Kat Zeltwanger and a whole bunch of others that were some of my, my early early folks who helped get this going. So appreciate that. Nice, them. man. Cool. Now see, now you got to tell Sean Miller and all those folks that you just mentioned, hey, make sure you watch this one. And then if they say thanks for the shout out, you'll know they actually listen. Just don't say yes. anything else to them and see if they come back to you. Well, it got me thinking about uh, James Gunn out there. It's eight years later and they're nine years later almost. And there's still some Easter egg in Guardians of the Galaxy that apparently people haven't figured out yet. So <laughs> I guess this is a good test. Now we will wrap up here. Uh, you, you know what's coming if you do re- regularly listen to the end. It might have been a while since you've had any, Connor, but if Berkey Creamery Ice Cream, if you were a flavor, which would you be? And I'm not asking for your favorite, but which would you be? And as a scholar alum, why would you be that flavor? Yeah, well, I thought long and hard about this one. And by long and hard, I mean 45 seconds, and then I Googled it to get something interesting to say. Usually I ask, answer these questions with the worst creamery flavor because it would mean that you had stand the largest chance of survival because nobody's going to eat you. So I started Googling what is the worst flavor at the creamery, and I found like lists of the top 15 that put vanilla down at the bottom, but I couldn't say vanilla. So then I found that Bill Clinton once ordered two flavors, and he was allowed to do that, and he's the only person ever to do two flavors. So I'll just say this. I want to be the next guy to come in and get two flavors and be allowed to do it at the creamery. They say that they were so overwhelmed, they shut down the whole store. Bill Clinton came in and mentioned two things, and they didn't even think about it. They just gave him two flavors. I'd like to do that someday. I'd like to someday be that important that I can get two flavors. I don't care what they are. That is a great, great answer. I, I really need to go back and catalog all of these. They've gotten progressively you know, but, but more mine interesting. Is the one that's, mine's going to completely mess up your methodology on classifying them because mine is two and it doesn't matter which one. No, see, mine's... Well, if, uh, if you're listening to this one, go back and listen to our episode with Elena Auerbach. Uh, her answer was, I kid you not, the cereal bar at Pollock. So that would really mess up any kind of uh, quantitative analysis on that, but now flavors. you can quantify me and her in nonsensical answers. Yes. In uh, right, cool. anything but actual ice cream. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Connor, thank you so much for, for hopping on here. It's great to have you visit us uh, virtually from Amsterdam. Really great insights on startups, on Penn State Barron, and on living and working abroad. And even if it's just for a couple of weeks while you're studying abroad, really appreciate all of your insights. And thank you so much for coming on here on Following the Gong. Thanks very much, Sean. Nice to be here. And uh, yeah, good luck with the continued episodes on the podcast, man. I'll be a listener from now on. Fantastic. Thank you, sir. Thank you, scholars, for listening and learning with us today. We hope you will take something with you that will contribute to how you shape the world. This show proudly supports the Schreier Honors College Emergency Fund, benefiting scholars experiencing unexpected financial hardship. You can make a difference at raise.psu.edu forward slash Schreier. 
please be sure to hit the relevant subscribe, like, or follow button on whichever platform you are engaging with us on today. You can follow the college on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn to stay up to date on news, events, and deadlines. If you have questions about the show or are a Stoller alum who'd like to join us as a guest here on Following the Gone, please connect with me at stolleralumni at psu.edu. Until next time, please stay well, and we are...